welcome to Inside COP26 with me, Sophie Schnapp, on Clydebilt Radio. Inside COP26 is a daily broadcast from the heart of the pivotal climate summit COP26. Each day, we'll be providing you with digestible snippets of the goings-on around COP, from unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone, where the climate negotiations take place, to the underground and inspirational fringe events around the city of Glasgow. Alongside my co-hosts, Tori Choi, Love Sega, Sally Milhook and Hayden Thorpe, we will be talking to scientists, activists, artists, musicians and more to be your eyes and ears inside and on the fringe of COP26. Our intro music is a track called Losing My Head by Hot Chip. Losing My Head was donated to Earth Percent, a charity who is partnering with our show Inside COP26. The musical intervals of the show is a song called Dawn Chorus by a musical visionary, Osmo Sheldrake. Of the show, every day we'll be talking to Sally Mulhook, unpicking the politics from inside the blue zone where the climate negotiations take place. Sally Mulhook is a friend of the show and is one of the top scientists from Bangladesh on climate change science. He was recognised as one of the top 20 global influencers on climate change policy in 2019, and we are delighted to have him on the show. Welcome, Salim. Hello, hello, hello. How are you today? I'm fine. Keeping up. Keeping up, keeping up. Um, any news on the day so far that you want to share? Uh, yes, there have been a number of um, high-level statements. The heads of government are still making their speeches. Um, my Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, who's here, has uh, made her speech. She also happens to be leading a group of vulnerable countries called the Climate Vulnerable Forum. There are nearly 50 of them. Many of their heads of government are here as well. She'll be meet, meeting with them and chairing a meeting of them this afternoon at 4 p.m., uh, where I'll also be attending. And we are expecting them to come out with a very strong statement in terms of what they'd like to see happening in Dhaka. They have actually prepared what they call a Dhaka-Glasgow declaration okay. of their demands, which she will be presenting this afternoon. And then all the governments will be pushing over the next two weeks to see if we can get that done here in Glasgow. So this is the kind of biggest one on the table today? This is absolutely the biggest one from the vulnerable countries side. Yeah. These are the most vulnerable countries. They are prepared. They are together. They are united. They have certain demands which they are placing. The first one being we have to come on track to stay below 1.5 degrees. That's absolutely essential. Their survival is at stake. Not Going above 1.5 means that they will die. And that's not something they are willing to allow. The second one is money. $100 billion was promised to them. It hasn't been delivered. Not only that, half the money was supposed to go for adaptation in the vulnerable countries. Whatever money was given, only 20% of that went for adaptation. That's not right. And so they're asking for the full $100 billion and half of it for adaptation, which was a promise made a long time ago, not kept to be kept. And thirdly, 
a new subject for COP26 is loss and damage from climate change, which is now a reality and needs to be addressed uh, appropriately. They are also asking for the five-year review to become a one-year review because we can't wait five years to review the progress. And as it happens, we're not making good progress. So state waiting five years for the next one simply doesn't make any sense. Can we go a bit deeper into that? So um, for the listeners at home, the reason that this COP is so important is it's the first time that the Paris Agreement is going to be reviewed by all of the countries that have signed the Paris Accord. Um, and now it's being reviewed currently every five years. And that's being reviewed in the nationally determined contributions. But what what is the new conversation on the table? And it's called the... Well, it's it's a ratchet. The it's ratchet. a ratchet mechanism. So you, the idea is to ratchet up ambition yes. from a low level to a high level, and everybody do it together yes. because nobody wants to do it alone. Um, the original Paris Agreement had a five-year review and ratchet mechanism every five years. We are now in the first of those five years. According to the original design, we wouldn't do it again for another five years. But that's not uh, going to work. It, first of all. We're not doing well. We're not reaching our agreement or our target. So, uh, and even the first five-year review is showing us to be in bad shape. So the vulnerable countries in particular are asking for the ratchet mechanism to become an annual event. Every COP, we will review progress and push countries to take do more if they're not doing enough. Which is uh, will be a lot more work for, I guess, the auditors and the monitors, but it is so needed and it's we can't... Things are moving so fast in the climate world, we can't, we can't leave it fine. Absolutely. And, and in fact, it isn't a big task to monitor. We can monitor now in real time. We can say how much happened last month. So giving an annual review is no longer a big uh, uh, ask in terms of the analysis that needs to be done. Uh, it can be done quite easily by academics, by researchers, by the UN Framework Convention Secretariat themselves pulling together all the the literature is being available and making a review. So right now, for example, the review of all the nationally determined contributions that have been submitted show that if you all add them all up, we're going to end up at 2.7 degrees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's if they do everything they promise to do, which is a big, you know, uh, faith in them, which they haven't shown in practice before. Um, and that's a long way from 1.5, which yeah. is what everybody agreed to do. And so we need to do better, we need to do faster, and we need to review progress every year and not every five years. Great. I want. I have two more questions because I know we're all in speedy timeframes. One, this concept of emissions not being counted across the borders mm -hmm. and um, how we start to get governments to account for them and to really take responsibility for what they're doing, as you say. What, what we're doing in the UK, let's say, is having a huge impact on so many places across the world, but they're not taking account for that and for the lives lost in the vulnerable regions, in, in any region, uh, for the children that are, you know, having to breathe in this fume. So how, is there any way we can start to put that into politics and would the UN Convention not be the right place to have it? Well, the calculations of emissions from different sources and then adding them up in different um, ways is something that the scientific community does. Right. And this is something that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Working Group 1, are tasked with doing. 
they actually do it in different ways. They cut the pie in different ways. One of them is uh, within national boundaries, which is the one we use in the UN Framework Convention. So here, countries are represented by governments who govern over a national boundary. And so these countries all need to know how much is my country emitting versus another country emitting. Now, there are two underlying uh, important figures in that which don't de- get taken into account. One is the emissions of a given country on a per capita basis. So India is a good example. India might look like a big emitter, but if you divide the emissions by one and a half billion people, it's a tiny emitter per person. And a country like Australia, which is a small population but a huge carbon footprint, the per capita emissions are 10 times an Indian. So a typical Australian is emitting 10 times a typical Indian, although India's emissions are bigger than Australia's emissions. So if you add, if you look at them as whole countries, you get one picture. If you look at them as um, per capita, per person, you get another picture. The other uh, difference in the way things are counted is if you count who is consuming the products that are causing the emissions. And a large part, let us take China as a very good example. China is now the place where consumer goods for rich countries all over the world are produced. They produce your your clothes, your cars, your whatever it is you're consuming, your television sets, your fridges, they're all being produced in China for you in Britain, in Europe, in America, and they're shipped across to the rest of the world. And you're consuming them. You're using them. But China is being blamed for the emissions that are caused by making them. And China quite legitimately says, well, these are not our emissions. They're your emissions because we're making this stuff for you. So shouldn't you be responsible for these emissions? It's a good argument. But it doesn't get much uh, uh, traction here because, as I said, here the unit of um, discussion is a national boundary and the emissions within the national boundary are what are counted. But then again, it's who is profiting from it and and there are so many different ways you can calculate the emissions and who should be in charge of them. But China are essentially gaining the money from these commodities. Another question I want to talk to you about is commodities of why air and our lands are not necessarily valued as much as other things, but not for today. For today, I want to know one final thing. What are the other questions on the table? There was the reforestation mm-hmm. um, agreement that came out. So That's a good agreement. Yeah. 100 countries. Um, the, the problem with agreements in general is that we have a very bad history of abiding by agreements. Yeah. We have a good history of making them, yeah. but a bad history of abiding by them. And the likes of the leader of Brazil, Mr. Bolsonaro, does not give me much faith in an agreement that he signs here in Glasgow that he will actually implement when he goes back to Brazil. And he's not actually coming to Glasgow, so whether he does or or doesn't really matter. But whether whether the Brazilian government will actually abide by an agreement that they make in Glasgow. These are extremely... uh, fraught questions in terms of credibility of the countries that make promises. Uh, The time for making promises, in my view, are over. It's about delivering. 
Yeah. We made the main promises were made six years in Paris ago in Paris. So deliver them. Yeah. Don't it's make new promises. Yeah. Don't make new promises. Deliver the promises that you made before and haven't delivered. Thank you. Is there anything else that we should be thinking of today? No, that sounds perfect. Enough for today, I think. And tomorrow, just figure that out then. Tomorrow, tomorrow, the actual negotiations get under with the leaders leave. So right now, we are still in the second day of the leaders meeting, which is essentially every leader getting three minutes on the stage, which is interesting because, you know, you don't see this. They're, they're being transmitted live, so you can hear each leader's speech live on on the UN TV. But what they don't show you is the room in which they are speaking. It's a big plenary room. It's empty. Every leader goes up, makes a speech, goes away, and it's shown on television. But there's nobody in the room listening to them. People are all out here talking to each other. Yeah. Right? So this is really a PR exercise, a real PR exercise. These leaders have come here to negotiate. They're not talking to each other. They're not trying to figure out what to do. They're each getting three minutes on the stage, and they'll get one big photo op with Boris Johnson, and then they'll fly away. There's 200 jets sitting in the airport waiting for them to pick them up. So, you know, it's some, some extremely questionable ways in which we do things. It's a PR or a media top lawyer, you Precisely. know, trick of the eye. Precisely. It's uh, what I call a shining object that Prime Minister Boris Johnson is putting in front of the media and they're buying it as if this is some big summit. It's not a summit meeting at all. It's a summit photo op. The summit meeting actually took place two days ago in Rome, the G20 leaders. That was a summit meeting, all right? Those G20 leaders who met in Rome account for 80% of global emissions. They can make Paris happen if they reduce their emissions. If they had decided to do that in Rome, we would have been talking some serious action. They didn't. They're now flying into Glasgow and making all kinds of statements. But the reality is they're not delivering on what they were supposed to deliver on. That's very unfortunate. Right now, we'll all get PR. You know? Everybody's going to make a nice speech. And they're going to say, this, we're doing this, we're doing that, when it doesn't add up to a can of beans. And that we don't question. Or the media doesn't question. Tomorrow, we're still probably not going to be in a positive note. That's, that's well, the world we'll see. We live in. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the world we live in does not... Um, make or break on a meeting and this has been hyped up as make or break you know boris johnson yesterday said it's our last chance it's not our bloody last chance no. all right it never last chance exactly but it, it's good to hype it up as an important point we need to make progress we need to make shift the dial in that sense correct to do that but on the other hand if it doesn't work to say everything is lost is wrong you see so that's what he's hyping us up to uh, uh, gear up to say because it's not going to work, it's not going to deliver, and we'll have to keep on fighting. COP27 and then COP28, it doesn't end. Next, we'll move over to our part on the Green Zone and Fringe events to provide you with some inspirational content from around Glasgow. Hello, lovely to meet you. Hi, lovely to meet you too. Um, we're in the Blue Zone, but in a, as you were saying, a little uh, kind of airplane shaft, but... Uh, it's uh, nice to feel at peace almost. Yes, um, got a wee quiet space here. A wee quiet zone. Can you tell me your name and what you're doing at COP? 
Pure. My name is Maddie McCallan. Um, I'm MSP for Clydesdale and Minister for the Environment in the Scottish Government. And we're here on day two. We've got a full two-week programme, um, lots of work, much of it in my space is nature-based solutions to climate change. And I've also got great privilege of having climate justice in my portfolio. So I've just come from a really interesting discussion uh, with figures from the Global South talking about what they need to come from COP26. So that was today? That's just five minutes ago, yes. I just finished. Amazing. And what, um, if you want to just summarise what inspired you in that that area and if it made you kind of want to change any politics if you have the power to um, link to that? I think what we do is we ask ourselves in all of this, who's not being heard? Mm -hmm. And it's different for different occasions. It could be women, girls, young people, and people from the Global South. And of course, they are the ones that are being affected now by climate change and actually have done virtually nothing to contribute to it. So what I was just at, actually, was the Glasgow Climate Dialogues, where we brought experts from the Global South to tell us and to present to negotiators exactly what the Global South needs. So we're trying to elevate the voices of people who aren't heard. This is um, really quite admirable of Scotland, but um, do you feel that on the kind of negotiation tables, other leaders and ministers and um, people of inverted commas power are also listening to this at the moment? I should like to think that they're listening, but I think we feel it's important to make sure that they are. Um, yeah, and that's what we're trying to do. Just as an example, Scotland is the only... I think country in the world or in the global north that have um, finally pledged a fund to loss and damage. That was yesterday's news. It's amazing. Yes, and the First Minister announced that yesterday and I was just talking about it with the team again today. It's very welcome. We're not going to stop talking about loss and damage. We think it's it's really important and I'm so pleased that we've managed to pledge that that money and I really hope others will follow. Yeah. Me too. Um, do you want to tell us what loss and damage is in 20 seconds? <laughs> yeah, of course. So I think, you know, we need we need emissions reduction measures to come out of COP to mitigate the effects of climate change. But it's about acknowledging that there are impacts of climate change that are already embedded and we need to adapt to them. Now that happens through drought, flooding, coastal erosion, desertification, affecting people right now. And then, of course, there are impacts of climate change that you can't calculate in economic terms and that includes loss of life. Mm. So it's about recognising the fact that that's happening, it's happening now and the countries who have done the most to uh, have benefited from industrialisation and have done the most to cause climate change and now have a moral responsibility to do our part to uh, alleviate the suffering that people are already feeling. Mm. Just amazing to hear you saying our part, like it's it's us that scores it so we put our hands in the air and we say we're sorry and let's try and help make change, right? Yeah. If only everyone was as progressive as you. Um, There was another topic I wanted to talk about and it's the arts and if you see there being a place for the arts within um, environmental policy. Yeah, absolutely. I was just mentioning to you before we started that um, I come from a family of of artists and creatives so um, I very much live vicariously through them in that regard. But no, I quite agree. In politics generally, I think the arts has got a huge place. We have had experience, recent experience in Scotland of several referenda where over long campaigns, it was poets and writers and song and singers who came to the fore and through their art told the story of politics far more than you know sometimes politicians can do. And I think that they really engaged and um, lent into something a little bit deeper mm. in, in the populace and it was received really well so absolutely um, and I yeah I really hope 
that in the environmental sphere that will continue to be the case as it has been in politics generally. We need it. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you are excited about or scared of um, over the next two weeks and do you... I know I'm sorry to bring up the classic question, but like, are you feeling optimistic or are you feeling quite scared of like the final results? Yeah, no, I am. I am. I'm scared yeah. because the word I'm worried that um, despite all of the evidence, despite the IPCC report, the code red for humanity, that that the negotiators that we do fail to come up with something that is going to keep 1.5 alive. It's day two. We've got a full two-week program, and this goes beyond this event. So for our part, we will keep pushing as much as we possibly can. But of course there's a risk of failure. Um, but for me, it's unthinkable that in the face of the evidence that we have, we would do anything other than commit ourselves collectively to reducing emissions and doing it fairly and taking everyone with us and not leaving anyone behind. Nice to meet you. Really nice to meet you as well. Thank you so much for hosting me in the Kew Garden uh, Pavilion in the Blue Zone. It's been my happy place um, throughout the, the full two days so far. Can you tell me your name and what you do, first of all? Thank you. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, my name is Alex Antonelli and I'm the Director of Science at the Royal Botanical Gardens Kew and I'm a Professor of Biodiversity and Systematics at the University of Oxford and in Gothenburg in Sweden as well. So I'm an active researcher and I have the honour of leading the work of Kew's over 350 scientists. Wow. And because Kew is known as a place for kind of bringing biodiversity back to life in, in, in its own boundaries. So um, would you like to tell me just a little bit about that? Sure. So yes, people do know Kew, I think, primar primarily as a beautiful garden in southwest London. And of course we are, and we really want people to be able to have an experience when they come there and they, you know, they, they see some of the beauties of nature and, and plants. But we're also a scientific organization. So at the core of our mission is about researching plants and fungi and use that knowledge to protect, value and sustainably use biodiversity. So it's a, it's a complex organization uh, dealing with more than 100 different countries and working in partnerships to really deliver nature-based solutions to the climate and biodiversity crisis. Wow, and this is something that I've been talking to different musicians and artists across the course of the show and they're all saying we don't know enough about nature and nature has a lot of answers that we have yet to discover. So how does that make you feel? It's amazing. I mean, it's absolutely true. And every single year, we are describing about 2,000 new species of plants and 2,000 new fungal species. So we are just beginning to understand, you know, the, the amazing complexity of life on Earth, including plants, fungi, animals. And of course, this is just about identifying and putting a name on species. And we are just really scratching the surface of how much knowledge and how much, how much you know, we could actually learn from those species. We've had numerous cases of plant species providing us with medicine, with fiber, uh, of course, source of food, shelter, and there are so many other uses that we haven't even imagined. So I think there's a huge treasure at the same time as we know that that diversity is disappearing faster than ever before. So there's, um, I was told about this one trick that the fungi in Mexico City are being used to um, uh, digest nappies because there's a big amount of nappies that need to be digested there. Do you have any other funny 
um, tricks or climate solutions that you can give our listeners uh, an example of what fungi can actually do? Fungi are absolutely amazing and you know uh, the, mention, the example I just mentioned is one critical problem and uh, it's causing landfills and um, a lot of waste and reducing waste is one of the major challenges we have now to avoid polluting our rivers, our oceans, our nature and of course um, we're trying to find solutions for that in nature and, and fungal species they have some amazing properties including as you say uh, basically breaking down some of the molecules of different substances and there are some others that are used for instance against oil spills uh, there are some fungi that actually accumulate gold in, in, in soil there are all kinds of strange you know weird functions we are just beginning to understand cool very cool it's it's great now that science is becoming something cool actually isn't it um so for the last one i agree uh, i mean plants are cool too (laughs) i think we're naturally born to to appreciate animals and things moving but actually if you start to look at you know a plant has so much to tell in a fungus as well they you know they're very active just they're just living at another time scale yeah and and that's really the trick yeah So the reforestation agreement that came out um, linked to your... You've been working on the right tree in the right place project for a while. So how do you... Are you you happy about the reforestation agreement? And can you tell us a bit more about how your project links in with um, potentially the future of that? Sure. So I think we are all acutely aware of the challenge that climate change is posing on us. And one of the major things that needs to be done is really to cut deforestation. And that's what this agreement is about. So um, I think by this morning, about 105 world leaders had signed it with the intention of halting deforestation by the end of this decade. So by 2030, no more deforestation should take place. And some big players, including Brazil and China, for instance, have already committed to to be behind this. So, of course, I'm very pleased to see that. uh, But we have heard promises before. And this is not the first time there have been an, a, you know, a global attempt to halt deforestation, and all of them have failed. So we need to understand what actually, how is this going to happen? And um, not only com- complaining and you know, identifying the problems, but also pointing out solutions. And that's what we are, we are all about at Kiev. So we've been working together with partners, organizations, other governments to develop guidelines, including the 10 golden rules for successful reforestation, which are really very basic simple um, you know rules basically to, to, to follow if you want to do that in a way that is going to be sustainable it's going to be beneficial for people beneficial for climate and beneficial for species so this is just one example where our knowledge derived from our collections our extensive collections of plants and fungi we're using that knowledge to really fit back into government and policy so that we can create a better world in your two hands what are the 10 rules so, so the 10 rules uh, actually start with a rule uh, that is not to uh, reforest at all is actually to protect existing forests first. So basically, there's been a lot of commitments to plant billions of trees around the world without realizing that we, the first thing we have to do is to stop cutting down the forests we still have. And then we have a series of rules that are about working with the local people, having much more engagement than there has been in the past, uh, to also think not only about climate and carbon sequestration, but also biodiversity and also the people living there so they can get clean water, they can get other benefits. It's about selecting the right area for reforestation. So, for instance, not trying to plant trees in a, in a desert. What has is happening in some places? Actually, we need to find places where those forests are going to be sustainable. Um, it, it is about using uh, re- for natural restoration wherever possible. So we don't have to be planting trees act- actively. Sometimes it's just about fencing off an area and letting the forest come back. 
the sixth one is about selecting the three species that maximize biodiversity. And some of them are actually going to have a, a very important effect of bringing other species, including birds, including other, other animals, to come back to those forests and make it much more biodiverse. We also have to think about climate change and how the selection of species we're, doing, we're making today are going to be coping with climate in 20, 30, 50 years from now. Uh, we also have to understand how to plant it in a way that is really um, feasible because, for instance, storing seeds and, and germinating them is actually not an easy piece. So we're using our knowledge to provide that information. It's about adapting um, you know, those projects to the reality of different places. There's no one-size-fits-all solution to all of them. And finally, this needs to uh, be economically sustainable. So we can't be pumping, pumping money into every country uh, for all features. We need to we need to create much greener economies so that countries can live without deforesting and still be so socially and economically sustainable into the future. I adore talking to you and I'm going to say, please, will you come back on my show to do a full feature? Because I've got so many other questions. Um, one of them is this, we won't, we won't answer it now, but maybe just a tiny thought on um, the concept of scientists now finding ways to find seeds that, were, um, that are indigenous to different places but are now... Um, extinct and scientists finding ways of making these seeds uh, come back to life. Yes, it's, it's a major effort. It's a major focus of Kew Science as well. So we hold the largest collection of wild plants in the world. That's the Millennium Seed Bank. And through a partnership across the world, we have over 2.2 billion seeds from 40,000 species. And some, some of them have already gone extinct in the wild. And that's a way of safeguarding for the future. We, we know that they can regrow. They are stored in cold conditions and they can come back to life and be used for restoration projects, for instance. And that's an effort we'd love to increase. Mm. We'd also love to increase the, our ability of storing seeds from tropical trees, which are much more challenging. Hi everyone, welcome back to Inside COP, the radio show that is being co-hosted with Earth Percent and I am Tori Troy. Uh, I spoke with Sophie on Monday and I'm really, really delighted to have a conversation with the founder of Northern Ireland's first ever climate festival, Jacinta Hamley, uh, who is a good friend of mine and a fellow organiser who I actually sailed across the Atlantic with. So we have many stories and, you know, things to talk about during this 10 minute slot. But yeah, Jazz, I was really, you know, excited to hear that you were kind of in that space because it is such a, I think it's such an unusual quote-unquote space for people to be in where they organize festivals because they're typically associated with quite joyful and exciting memories that people create but in the context of climate and yeah. I think that's just amazing so yeah. could you tell me a bit more about it yeah well so I think that's a really like important point was one thing that I find so valuable about climate action is that they actually can be very joyous and there is so much happiness from taking part and being involved and caring on the one hand it can be so scary like the reality of the climate crisis is horrifying mm -hmm. um for so many people across yeah. the world already let alone if you think about how much worse it's going to get that can be crippling i have been sure. like crippled by that paralyzed by that mm -hmm. in terms of actually being able to act 
And one of the most important things I found from like the likes of Sealed at the Cop was connecting with like real people and getting inspired by their stories, getting inspired by other people caring and mm. actually taking action. Um, so that's where I thought the Climate Festival is actually a yeah. really great way to try and balance those two things. You create a space which can mm. be quite lively and fun to be part yeah. of, but is also trying to tackle really challenging issues. Yeah. Um, and that can also be a more inviting way for kind of general public to get sure. involved and get engaged with it to begin with. Yeah, I love that because, you know, as someone who's been in the organising space for a while now, and I can say quite firmly that the majority of organising spaces that I've been in have usually been quite stressful or mm. I don't want to say plagued, but there is always an undertone of... of oh, we're tackling something so scary and so big and we need to be angry and frustrated. And these emotions are so powerful and they're very important. There's definitely a space for them. But I also think that there are a lot of people who, like you mentioned, when they are faced with this information about the climate crisis, it just prompts this shutdown reaction. Yeah. It makes people not want to get involved. It makes people not know how to act. And yeah, I'd love for you to talk all about climate crack and like mm -hmm. how it came about and and what you guys did yeah. it's a fabulous name by the way yeah thank you <laughs> oh yeah so for a little bit of context as well in so crack uh, in ireland is actually a way to say like fun or so you'd say what's the crack what's going mm. on is the kind of translation or it was really good crack is it's really good fun so there's a lot of kind of like um context around this uh, this word in northern ireland it's also quite a um historically divided community uh, mm. from the kind of the conflict that we had not that long ago with the troubles and stuff and there we are still like a post-conflict society um, and crack is a really interesting word because it has both Irish and Ulster Scots origins yeah. um, which in itself is really important because the climate crisis is a, co a collective issue this is a very very um, common cause mm. that has kind of the power to bring people together Yeah. specifically in Northern Ireland, globally of course as well, but really in the context of Northern Ireland. And I think that is so empowering to think of, especially as a younger generation who do get kind of um, overwhelmed by the local politics there, yeah. um, that this is something that can bring people together and a movement that can connect. Uh, so there's so many layers to what kind of underpinned climate crack getting started in the first place. Yeah. A lot of it was about community building, connection mm. and joy. These are kind of the main things. What climate, the positives that can come with climate action sure. and being engaged and taking part. Uh, and then the festival kind of just was born out of that, you know. I love it. I love it so much. And I think that one of the things that I really relate to is this idea of community and also joy. And, and they... And they can be synonymous with taking action. And I think it's so important for us as organizers to remind ourselves that, you know, joy is so needed and is needed yeah. to make these um, actions that we take sustainable. Because exactly. otherwise you just burn out. You just feel bereft of joy all the time. Yeah. So the festival itself, when did it happen and, and kind of what was the, yeah. the output, the format? Yeah, so it happened about a month ago. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a wild story about how quickly we created this festival. I kind of um, envisioned this idea back in like May time, mm. uh, applied for funding and things like this um, and only really got a team together in July and then had oh the festival in September. Wow. So about two months was gone into organising this, oh like properly, um, <laughs> which was 
a wild turnaround it really was um, but I think it's really exciting to see what can happen in a short space of time when you have people who are motivated and they care the amount of people that said to me who are like professional event organisers Jacinta who has zero event organising skills yeah. <laughs> or experience and they were like it would have taken us years slash we would never have been able to achieve, achieve this in an organisation because of all the bureaucracy you yeah, know whereas we yeah, just had yeah. we had a vision we had a cause we had a meaning mm. and it drives people and I think it is so empowering to see across the climate movement like what people yeah. do and achieve because yeah. they care so much about this and that gives me so much hope more than yeah. anything else sure is sure like really people yeah. caring and connecting and and on that note i kind of want to ask you you know we were just together in that times radio hub where yeah. you did a really fantastic interview about the importance of people power and youth power yeah. and the stuff happening outside of cop 26 what would you say to people who are like oh you know i wasn't able to get a, a, a badge to the blue zone i'm not accredited i don't really know what cop 26 is yeah. but how can people get involved when they're you know part not part of the conference and you said something brilliant about how important it is to have outside yeah. leadership and actually that is real leadership yeah. do you want to kind of elaborate on that yeah yeah no 100 percent um so we talk a lot about people power and mm. i think it's actually such an authentic and true thing and I think right now we're really seeing that at COP and we'll only continue seeing it as the two weeks go on yeah what is possible when people mobilize and they come together and they're organizing and creating these spaces which are also so much more inclusive and sure. have meaningful discussions than we can ever really achieve in the formalities mm-hmm. of COP um I think if you don't have accreditation to the blue zone you might actually be given this uh yeah this chance to explore further yes, what is probably yeah, the more yeah. meaningful reality mm, of COP, mm. which is what's going on around it. Yeah. Um, it forces yeah. you to, to find or seek alternatives, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. You know, I'm one of the few privileged people to be accredited with a pass to the blue zone with my delegation. And I'm not going to lie, there's been way more of a pull for me to want to go to community organised mm-hmm. events because... I think anyone who's in the climate space as an organiser, not a politician or a delegate of a sort of traditional capacity, they know the value in in what gets done by people, by quote-unquote ordinary people who really, quite frankly, care a lot more than a lot of people who are in suits uh, inside. And, of course, that's a sweeping generalisation. But, you know, I definitely feel like there's so much more intimacy, uh, raw emotion, connectivity, like people aren't aren't read to you know reading out scripts and Mm -hmm. and kind of performing in front of large audiences it feels very Mm -hmm. authentic yeah and on that note is there anything that you're really looking forward to over the next two weeks that you're going to be here is there anything that you kind of want to prioritize um definitely making connections Mm -hmm. so one of the like my new saying (laughs) is that action comes from compassion action comes from compassion i love it um and because we care about the topics we care about other people and I feel the more that you connect with real people you understand kind of like the reality of the situation you understand new stories you understand new perspectives you at least get to hear them and try to embrace them and then let that kind of seep into the own actions that you do yeah um so yeah so for me really it is about connecting with more people across the movement across countries um, yeah and finding ways to try and embed that back into climate action also locally in Northern Ireland. Uh, So yeah, for again, for a little bit of context on the festival, it was 
fantastic. We ended up having like two to three thousand people. Wow. Um, yeah. Oh held on the parliament grounds. A few politicians came, not nearly yeah. enough. We in- personally invited all of them. Yeah. Um, even went to their like office constituency doors and wow. knocked and told them like, about it. Um, next year they won't be able to ignore us because they realised yes. it was a real thing Yes, it was well Amazing. attended and I think this is one of the exciting things about starting out uh, an initiative is that there always has to be a beginning Right. thankfully right, right, our right. beginning, it went well Yeah. it was so far from perfect and yeah. I'm so proud of it that we still did it yeah. so one of the real things that came home for me was like we don't have the luxury of time to wait for perfection like action needs to happen now yeah. there's an urgency which means yeah. that you can't wait for the perfect moment you can't wait for like mm. having all the knowledge mm. or having all the right skills or ideas or whatever um, yeah. we just need to create these spaces and be heard meaningfully in that moment um, and that's what we tried to do and that's it, we did succeed knowing that it's yeah. also only going to build upon that that's incredible and really exciting and hopefully that means climate crack 2022 yeah maybe yeah, yeah? okay uh, can you get me a ticket yeah <laughs> I'd for love, sure yeah for I'd love sure. to come well thank you so much jazzy that was honestly very empowering and very insightful and inspiring as well for me because you know as somebody who often in spaces I, I can be quite forthcoming and quite direct blunt and sadly sometimes quite uh, I wouldn't necessarily say pessimistic but realist it is always really nice to connect with people who build their work on compassion and Mm. I think it's so needed and we need Mm. more healers compassionate people and doers in this movement to keep it afloat and Mm. sustainable so thank you oh thank you that was very beautiful that was a very (laughs) beautiful thing to say um no thank you so much for interviewing me that was brilliant uh yeah great My name's Graham Eddowes. Uh, I'm a final year PhD student um, in physics and I'm also a member of the COP26 coalition. I've volunteered for them for the last two years. This is the reason we're talking really, isn't it? Because the Coalition 26 or the COP Coalition 26 are kind of bringing all different activists together, right, to be one collective big force. How how are you managing that how are you organizing it and how and what are you doing <laughs> uh well, great difficulty it's it's uh, it's not and the thing is it's not just activists so it's, it's everyone from faith groups to your large ngos to your more traditional activists like extinction rebellion or green new deal to um local glasgow communities um that's been hard just for the time especially in the middle of pandemic to try and reach out to glasgow communities and say you know ha- ha- try and find a way to get them to know that their voice can be heard and, and indeed even if that's to protest against COP coming to the city because a lot of local citizens have felt it's been imposed on them mm. um, and we support all Glaswegians whether it's to send a message to COP whether it's to leavers COP for Glasgow's game or whether it's to come and say I didn't consent to this descending on my city and I'm quite angry about it so so are you feeling like people around the city are quite angry about COP coming yeah rightly so I mean uh the organisation that we now see, and we're in what, the second day, like, yesterday I was trying to get around the city by bike, which is ironic because they're trying to promote sustainable transport. Uh, I couldn't get through anywhere near the venue um, and the temporary measures in place were a nightmare. And obviously we saw the leaders' dinner, um, all the world leaders eating at Kelvin Grove and residents couldn't get into their homes uh, mm-hmm. as, as the West End was closed off. True. Um, I also felt that problem too, getting around on yeah. a bike, which you would have thought would be the easiest mode. Um, can you tell me some of the kind of positive things that are coming together and people, you know, if there's any 
positives and people coming together and fighting against. So I've, we, I've just come back from the Dawes Home Cleansing Depot pickets with the GMB Union, and it's nice to see a lot of climate activists um, there supporting, and also throughout the city at multiple, like Palma D Depot and, and whatnot. It's nice to see them around the city supporting our local workers who are asking for fair pay from the city council um, and standing in solidarity with them. Mm. And what about any... Um are you working with any international bodies too? So the, the COP26 coalition is technically a coalition of UK civil society. The way it works is it has to be because the UK is the president of the COP. But we have an international solidarity uh, group. So through that, we work with multiple partners all over the world, be it through your large NGO bodies like Friends of the Earth International or through smaller activist campaigns. Um, so we've also, the coalition's directly supported v- through visa support and through logistical support, like booking flights, to get people from all around the world to Glasgow, um, where otherwise they maybe wouldn't have had the same opportunities. And then the final and the big one, what is happening in Glasgow? <laughs> Everything. So the main things to, to sort of, main dates of your diary, the 5th of November are the youth strikes. Um, you'll have seen Greta Thunberg tweeting about them. Uh, she in support of local Glasgow union, unions, so they're coming out on the 5th. And it's not just for young people, it's all ages come out on the 5th, 11 o'clock, Kelvin Grove Park. The 6th of November, the day after, is the same groups of people and more as part of the Global Day of Action. We're calling on all local Glaswegians to come down. It doesn't matter whether you're in support of COP or against COP. Come down and protest with us 1130 at Kelvin Grove Park. We'll be marching down to the protest venue and then a COP venue and across to uh, Glasgow Green. We're expecting about 100,000 people. Wow. And then finally, from the 7th to the 10th of November, we have the People's Summit. Mm. And that's in person and online. A lot of the in-person venues are around Charing Cross. So you can check all that stuff out at our website at cop26coalition.org. And um, a lot of the People's Summit is kind of like fighting for justice and climate justice and... and People in Glasgow say it themselves. We had 25 of these. Why Why do we need the 26? You know, it's just a lot of white, wealthy people, mostly uh, from rich nations, talking amongst themselves uh, and, and how they can hold on to power and wealth rather than demanding the radical change that we need. So the People's Summit is platforming voices from the Global South, from marginalised Glasgow communities as well, um, to try and leverage the power and demand climate justice. Lawrence Freeman a Catholic priest and a Benedictine monk of Monastery Stat Maria di Pilastreo in Italy. I think that we need a change of mind uh, if we're going to move from good intentions to unified action. We need a new kind of consciousness. How does meditation do that? I would say I don't know, but I know that it does. It leads to a personal transformation which then will ripple out into social transformation. And it's really just to, to keep a consciousness of the link, connection between the inner ecology and the outer ecology. Here is a sound recording of a ceremony hosted by five indigenous leaders from the Amazon, from the Asociación Jiboyana.
climate. We are talking to musicians across multiple disciplines to gather inspiration and ideas. Here's an interview with Patti Smith before her concert in Glasgow last Sunday. We are talking about music and its power to transform and you have transformed via, the, via music. So do you want to talk to us about how uh, music, your own music has inspired you to make change? Well, I'm inspired by all kinds of people. Uh, I think that music and art is very important in terms of inspiring people and inciting them. But I've also always believed that it's the people that have the power and our numbers and the people that make huge change. Artists cannot do it themselves. A song cannot do it themselves. Uh, an, a strong individual cannot do it him or herself. We really need uh, the people to rally and sacrifice and uh, help to make change. But I know even as a young girl, um, a song like the Lonesome Ballad of Hattie Carroll helped mm. uh, uh, solidify ideas in the, um, in, in the fight for uh, uh, racial uh, uh, equality and, um, and give young people an awareness. I was 15 when I heard that song and uh, when Neil Young did uh, Ohio, mm. um, he really helped energize the anti-war movement. Yeah. And I, I think that um, music has always been important, protest music and, and uh, music and poetry. But again, um, it's up to us, it's up to the people to make change. So music can inspire yes. and has been at the forefront of almost all kind of um, different activisms and, and manifestations of the past. And so kind of it is now the time for music to really engage in the climate fight from the listeners of music to the, to the musicians. Yes. Um, so here you're in Glasgow. How, yes. does, how are you feeling and how is Glasgow treating you? I'm very happy to be here. I think we have a very difficult task ahead. Mm. You know, I think of Joan Baez, one of our great singers, one of our great protest singers, walking hand in hand with Martin Luther King mm. at the height of the civil rights movement. Um, that's a beautiful example of, uh, of, of the spiritual, the political, and the artistic uh, coming together. And that's what we strive for. And that's what we're doing here tonight. At well, the Pathway to Paris. Yes, Jesse. Uh, I'm very proud of Jesse because this is something I could never organize. Yeah. I'm not an organizational person. And I was amazed when she started doing these events like six years ago that she will go to um, great artists, well known artists, could be rock and roll singers, mm -hmm. somebody like Joan Baez or someone like Michael Stipe or Flea. But she also goes to our great indigenous singers and performers are activists, uh, speakers, political people. Um, her, her events are always interactive and offering people not only inspiration but tools of activism when they leave. So I'm quite proud of her. Oh, that's such a and nice... And happy to serve her. Yeah, of course. It's this funny moment when, when the daughter then becomes, <laughs> becomes boss, right? Well, remember what the... It was Crosby, Stills and Nash, uh, uh, teach your parents well. Yes, totally. You know, our, um, I've learned quite a bit from my daughter. Mm, such a nice way to, to end it. Thank you so much for, Thank you. for yeah. being with Just us. Yes. One more question. Yes. You, how are your levels of optimism in, in, in the way we are? I mean, do you feel... Well, I mean, I feel all of the things everyone feels, a sense of urgency, um, you know, anguish, anger, all of these things, but 
I learned a long time ago that nothing is accomplished with pessimism. Mm. If you're pessimistic, uh, no matter how bad things are, you do nothing. Only with optimism, even in the face of uh, uh, so much strife or so many terrible challenges, that's when you're still energized enough to do something. So um, no room for pessimism. We have to have hope. We've got to believe. I actually do have one final question. Yes. If you could say to the whole world and the whole population one thing that they can do to be part of the climate fight, what would your one bit of advice be? Well, truthfully, the very first thing is to love one another. Because if you love one another, you want to protect and help one another. And there's no way that people can better help one another than to preserve the earth that we all um, that sustains us. Mm. So I think it all, uh, no matter how elemental it seems, it all comes down to love. Sharing love and finding love of each and other. And acting upon it. Ooh. Act upon love. That's beautiful. Thank you. Introducing Eno Insights. This part of the show will take a dive into Brian Eno's mind, thinking of innovative ways to save the planet. A big hello and welcome to Brian Eno. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Let's dive in. Thinking about art and feelings and the emotional baggage that we hold and wear when fighting against climate change. Do you see the feelings that we get from art and the work that artists are making about the climate fight and the climate change having an influence on the transformative change that we need? What I think artists are doing, uh, they, ha they have always done this to some extent, but now I think there's a new stamina being approached to, applied to this. Um, they're falling in love with the world. I keep thinking that the way we will save the planet is by falling in love with it, by realizing that every little microbe has has a reason for existing and has a right to exist as it were um this is a a thought that we've lost for the last few hundred years in the west anyway we we think there as there's us and we're important and dogs are important and horses are important and further down the list women are important and french people are important you know it's we have this sort of hierarchy of importance, but we don't think really that rats are important or that microbes or bacteria are important. So we, we regard some of the universe as important, the bit that we like, and the rest of it as resources. So we, we think that all that stuff exists to keep us going or keep us amused. Um, What's happening now as artists and scientists are looking more and more at the incredible, fantastic beauty of the, the world as a system, as an ecosystem, is that we cannot sustain that distinction anymore. And we're falling in love with the beauty of the world. The beauty at all sorts of levels, the visual, the sensory, but also at the intellectual level, at the, the beauty of ecosystems. Their, their intrinsic complexity and ability to surprise. So I think we're educating ourselves, basically, and we're educating ourselves, and it becomes impossible 
in the light of that education to say let's just treat the planet like a resource and a rubbish dump which is what we have been doing throughout the industrial revolution um, we won't be able to do that anymore just like you can't anymore treat Africans like slaves we know that they are real people with real feelings and they have every right to exist just as we do so we've stopped treating people like slaves some of us most of us <laughs> yeah so how we treat the world depends on how we how how much we love it again to the speakers, our faithful Sally Mulhook, our host Tori Choi and her guest Jacinda Hamley and the wonderful Mary McCallan, Alexander Antonelli, Graham Eddles and Patti Smith. Thanks again for the music from Hot Chip, Cosmo Sheldrake, the indigenous tribe from the Amazon and Patti Smith. This is Peaceable Kingdom. It's decreed the people rule.